0: If you're a regular listener of Cityscape, you know we don't settle for the status quo. We aim to uncover hidden attractions and unique things to see, do, and sometimes eat in New York City. I'm George Boraki. Today, we begin with the Eat in a Mexican restaurant on Manhattan's Lower East Side that doesn't just serve up your typical burrito and taco. The black ant incorporates insects, yes, bugs, namely grasshoppers and ants, into nearly every aspect of the menu.
1: Hello, my name is Mario Hernandez. I'm the chef uh, and a partner of and Restaurant and the rest of the restaurant that we have in our group. How long have you been involved in the culinary arts, Mario? I started when I was uh, 16 years old. My father already was uh, a really famous chef at that uh, uh, time. And uh, he brought me to the kitchen, and I started liking the the rooches, the adrenaline that you feel when the in the, the service and I started getting in love with the smells, the flavors and all the things that, that they're doing in the kitchen.
0: Was this back in Mexico? No, it was here actually in New York. Yeah. It was here in New York? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so where was your dad a chef? Uh, he was the first of uh, chefs
1: of Roxa Mexicano when they opened the first one on the 59th Street uh, so he, uh, Mrs. Uh, Howard bring uh, my father from Mexico. It's like 25 years ago, 35 years ago something like that
0: and now you are not only involved with this restaurant, you are involved with other restaurants as well here, right? Yeah. Uh, we have uh, five restaurants in our group.
1: Uh, Ofrenda, which is uh, really contempor- uh, classic Mexican cuisine. Uh, Black Can, which is this one, which is uh, um, more modern. Temerario, which is uh, some... Uh, we try to bring uh, little dishes from the streets of Mexico and bring it to the next level on, uh, on that restaurant. We have La Mano, which is a Spanish tapas bar that we just opened like a month ago. And we have a Gardenia restaurant, uh, which is a Mediterranean restaurant on, uh, down in the street.
0: What do you like most about being in the kitchen? What I like most, my sous chef and my chefs, there, they never listen to me. That's
1: the one of the things that I, I most like. Uh, the flavors, the, the things you can do every, every day. Every day is a new day, a new experience,
0: new ingredients, new things that uh, you never stop learning. So speaking of ingredients here at the Black Ant, you use insects in your recipes, right? And some of them, yes. Uh, We use uh, grasshoppers or chapulines that we bring
1: from Oaxaca in many forms, some in the desserts, some a, as a breading for uh, some ingredients, and in a salsas, moles, in many different ways. Uh, we're using black ants or chicatanas, which is our, uh, our, uh, they are um, ants that we bring also from Oaxaca and Chiapas. They are giant ants, the spices, uh, and we're using them um, like the grasshoppers in many forms, papers, uh, foams, uh, uh, as a garnish for our guacamole, salts, and uh,
0: moles, salsas. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's many things that you can do with them. I was going to ask the question, how are these insects, the grasshoppers, the ants, different from the grasshoppers and the ants that I might find in my backyard? Uh, well, I think they're different species, uh, obviously. Uh,
1: the, the ones we use here are wild. We harvest them on Mexico, in Oaxaca. Uh, we chocolate in salty water then we toasted and added some chili some uh, lemon juice some olive oil uh, some spices I think the difference is uh, of course uh, it's a different species that, that you can taste the grass when, when you uh, eat them really flavorful What do they taste like? Shrimpy umami I can say salty sweet spicy uh, bitters all those things that are making mommy,
0: uh the mummy world. How did you learn to prepare insects in your cuisine? Uh, how I learned? I, uh, first,
1: I saw my grandma doing when I was little. Uh, every Sunday, he, she take us to the market. And uh, it, was, it was like a little adventure every single uh, Sunday. Uh, sometimes he brings chapulines or grasshoppers. Sometimes he get uh, ant eggs or a uh, cuetlas, which is a uh, little worm, or beetles, and every single uh, Sunday he makes uh, different things. And, uh, and I guess the chapulines, because in Oaxaca you can find them in every single corner, and everybody has them like a snack like a popcorn. And it's part of our culture, part of our real
0: cuisine, so I guess I fall in love with them. And this is also a form of sustainability, isn't it, cooking with insects? I think so. Just to get a a pound of of, uh, meat, you need
1: like 2,000 liters of water. For a kilo of uh, grasshoppers,
0: you you need a couple liters. I mean, the difference is big. So how do your patrons react to having insects on the menu? Our first curiosity... Then uh,
1: a lot of people, believe it or not, uh, uh, they already know the we eat a lot of insects in Mexico. For example, the people who love uh, uh, mezcal, they know the agave worm already. So it's a man insect. Uh, the people who have margaritas, they know that we have some uh, like raso salt, like a warm, uh, agave worm salt. And they fall in love with the, with the taste.
0: Yeah. So not only are they in your dishes, they're also in your mm-hmm. drinks as yep. well. Yeah, yeah, also in our drinks and our
1: uh, salt for rimming the glasses, in our desserts. Yeah, not in all of them, so, yeah, some. How are they in the desserts? How are the, How is that prepared? Uh, how are in the desserts? Uh, for example, sometimes we have donuts, which are made with uh, grasshopper uh, flour grind the grasshoppers and we use them as a, as a flour. Uh, sometimes we use them as a salt or a sugar. Grasshoppers sometimes are dipping on a chocolate and uh, com- uh, are, uh, the finished component for uh, uh, some dishes also. Some of them are different components on the, or garnish or uh, the finished ingredient on uh, some uh, desserts. Uh, right now, for example, we have uh, ice cream made out of uh, grasshoppers for this upcoming... Uh, 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 spring so we use them in really different ways.
0: So that said I would imagine that sometimes they're detectable you can see them they are insects and sometimes they're not like yeah. in the ice cream. Yeah I, I mean sometimes you can see physically how they look
1: in some of the dishes and other are incorporated in the dishes and uh, you only can taste them. I mean it's a way to, to appro- the, the people can approach them without the be afraid of seeing the grasshoppers and the little legs and everything.
0: You know, that fear is unique to us here, right, in America.
1: Mm, yeah, I think so, because uh, in the rest of the world, like in Asia, every single country has uh, an Uh In Latin America, every single uh, country, too, uh, has their own insects. So I think it's little by little, the people are going to start accepting the, the thing. For us, it's uh, part of a culture. We feel, we feel uh, really proud of uh, the dishes that we serve here. And, uh, and we feel proud that we can show them to the, to the rest of the world.
0: You mentioned even at your other restaurants, you really work to bring Mexican street food to New York Mexico City. Too. Yeah, the flavor. So talk to me more about that, what you're bringing here. Well, uh,
1: I travel a lot to Mexico. And uh, every time that I, I, I get there, I lost myself in a little village or a little mercado, uh, tasting and smelling the the food of uh, those little mercados, markets. And uh, every single time that I get there, I discover a a new dish. So we're trying to bring uh, every season new dishes, new flavors, new things that we can show to our guests, to our customers. And, uh, And at the same time, we teach our cooks. We don't allow them to get bored doing the same thing over and over and over. Every single season is, is an expectation. When are we going to have this, uh, this winter or this uh, fall? Uh, so it's, I think it's a, a way to keep uh, our cooks interested in, uh, in their jobs and our customers uh, expecting uh, new things every single season.
0: What are some of your favorite dishes? Uh, depends.
1: Right here in Black Ant, uh the Buñuelos de Pato with uh, Rasco Permone. In the other restaurant, Temerario, I love the uh, Tacos Árabes, which is an uh, interpretation of uh, a gyros. When the Lebanese community started immigrating to Mexico in the 60s, bring the Jairos to Mexico, so we make our own version. Instead of using lamb, we use pork and uh, uh, the bread. It's a little different, but uh, a really, really part of our tacos on Puebla. So, in every single restaurant, we have a, our uh, I have my own plate that I, I really love it, and, I, and we keep it as a classic uh,
0: because I love it and the people like it. How critical is it in a city like New York when there is restaurant after restaurant? Do you have that unique flavor? Even something like this with the insects in your on your menu here? How critical is? Uh, I would imagine you have to consistently reinvent yourself yes. to remain popular and competitive. Yes, uh, we reinvented
1: ourselves every single season and uh, every single day. We try to improve our service, our our. Um, presentation of the, of the dishes, improving the, fla- the flavors, uh, bringing the best ingredients that we can, keeping local and keep those jobs local uh, for the farmers, for us, and uh, and uh, like you say, reinventing
0: ourselves every single day. Okay. okay, so Chef Mario, tell me what you just brought out from the kitchen. Well, this is our guacamole.
1: It's avocado with some uh, Ant salt, some uh, grasshoppers, uh, pomegranate seeds, and some uh, chili flakes on the top to just give it some uh, uh, spiciness.
0: So when you say ant salt, I guess these are crushed up ants. Is that what it is? Yep.
1: Crushed ants, some chilies, some
0: uh, seaweeds, uh,
1: some spices, and uh, and some chilies of course. And the grasshoppers that you can see around the the plate. We, we try to do is like a little garden. Uh, uh you know where they are jumping around and
0: that's what we try to do try it? let me yeah let me give this a shot so i have my uh tortilla here it's very good thank you mm.
1: some grasshoppers that you can try
0: now the grasshoppers are over here on yeah. the ends right yeah so let me try Mm.
1: Sumami, like very good yeah Shrimpy, yeah. salty it's rimpie, salty um, bitter spicy mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely spicy yeah. I, I taste that mm-hmm. yeah. and it's, uh, some of the chilies that we toasted with them, and uh, i think uh, it's a perfect bite of a snack at the bar we sell them as a little of a jars on the bar with a, when you have a drink or something the, like the ones you want to try now uh it has uh, some uh, and the uh, rim, around. And around the
0: rim. Yes. So you're going to try now. Uh, what do you think about the guac? I like the guac quite a bit, yeah. And it's certainly not intimidating. I mean, you know, yes, you can see grasshoppers in here, but that's I mean, not intimidating it's at all. It's like a little garden uh, mm-hmm. uh, there. I love that analogy of the garden. I love that. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Now you're going to see uh, one of my favorite dishes, too. use the Muñuelos uh, de Pato. It's a little fried dumpling with our, um mole Oaxaqueño. and uh, we keep it really rustic, really simple, uh, barely touched. So I think it's one of the reasons that people like uh, love this restaurant because no, we don't uh, try to hide the flavors
0: or uh, or overpower it with uh, and other things. Right, right. Do you eat grasshoppers like popcorn? Yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: we through, we go through around 70 kilos a month, which is a thousand of them. Uh, and yeah, we sell them like a little snacks on the on the, on the bar. And this is, is the... That's uh, the Smoky Jalapeno Margarita. With a
0: blackened uh, rim. Okay, I typically don't drink on the job, but today I'm gonna drink on the job. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, that's She's a really good one. Refreshing. Yeah, it's very refreshing. And this is ant salt ant on the salt, side? Yes. Yeah.
1: So those, little, those little things that you see around mm-hmm. are ants.
0: Yo, There you go.
1: Oh, yeah. Some of them.
0: Look at that. Those little legs. Oh, yeah. It's really good. And it also has a nice kick to it, like yeah. nice spice. Yeah, a little spicy, a little crunchy, uh, sweet at the same time.
1: I mean, complement the margarita really well. hmm so this is our food, this is our uh, drinks, and this is the the things that we try to show uh, the world and our uh, guests. that The Mexican cuisine is not only enchiladas or uh, taquitos. We have a taquitos that we feel really proud of them, but uh, it's many things that we can do and, uh, and uh, we can uh, bring to our, our guests every season. Right, you're not just getting the
0: burrito enchilada combo.
1: No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> No, we try to bring real, real Mexican furs in uh, every single uh, bite and every single uh, plate. Chef Mario, thank you so much for your time. No, thank
0: you for having me. That's Chef Mario Hernandez of the Black Ant Restaurant on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The Black Ant is the kind of place you may very well find in Atlas Obscura. It's a guide to wondrous and curious places all over the world. Their website includes more than 200 unusual things to do in New York City. Many of those places are also included in the Atlas Obscura book. I recently chatted with Atlas Obscura associate editor Ella Morton. Hello, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So what's the mission of Atlas Obscura?
2: The mission of Atlas Obscura is to uncover the world's hidden wonders, and we do that by showing what is out there in the world that people may be walking past every day and not realizing is there, and they just need someone to point it out to them. So the classic example that we give of what Atlas Obscura can uncover is the Eiffel Tower— Everyone knows the Eiffel Tower, everyone goes there, it's the typical thing, but people may not know that inside the Eiffel Tower, right near the top, there is a secret apartment that was built by Gustav Eiffel to impress his friends that has, like, plush carpeting and a grand piano, so... There may be things that are hiding in plain sight, just like that, that you don't know about. You just need a little, just someone to point you in the right direction.
0: So don't just gawk from street level. Go up and check it out.
2: Yeah, that's that's sort of the the ethos that we have is like go down that alleyway, ask that person what's there. You know, when you're whether it's in your hometown or when you're traveling across the world, like ask the questions, find out the stories, and you, you'll often discover that there is. There's just something incredible lurking behind every corner.
0: You've spent a fair amount of time investigating oddities underground in New York City, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, the underground, the sort of hidden behind doors or upstairs. Um, One of my favorites that I just actually visited last weekend that I brought someone to is this place called the New York Earth Room. And it's in a a building in Soho that just looks like a residential building. It's not really clearly marked if you look at the the list of um buzzers, it says New York Earth Room, but you would have to know to go there and it's on I think it's on it's on Worcester street in in Soho, and you press the buzzer, someone lets you in, they don't say anything. they just open the door. you go up the stairs and you walk into a room full of two feet of dirt, two feet of dirt that's it in <laughs> yeah. Room. In a a building in New York City. Yeah. Why is it there? Well, it's an art project. It's been there since 1977, and it was created by this guy named Walter de Maria, who also does some sort of land art projects around the world. He has another art installation just a few blocks away in Soho called The Broken Kilometre, and it's just these rows and rows of a gold rod that's been chopped up, but it's a kilometre long. And so, I mean, it's free to go to this place. You just have to know about it. And those are exactly the kinds of places that we like to uncover.
0: Give me a couple of more places in New York City worth Ooh. exploring.
2: Yeah. So there is a place called Dead Horse Bay, which is not the most attractive name. Um, it's also called Bottle Beach. And it's down towards, uh, it's, it's across from Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. So at the end of Flatbush Avenue. And... Back in the late 19th century, it was a horse rendering plant, um, which is where it got its dead horse, Bay moniker. But after that, it was filled in with a bunch of sand and dirt and garbage, essentially. But the garbage was things like bottles. Um, And that continued from the early 19th century to the 1950s. And what's happened now is that this landfill, this garbage has started to surface. So if you go there, you can find glassware from the 1920s. Hmm. And so people go there and collect stuff. Um, I guess it's not like a sort of beach vacation in the typical sense, but you can go there and discover. Yeah, wear shoes. Yeah, definitely wear (laughs) shoes. Yeah. what else is in New York? Oh, there there are like little museums that people don't know about. Um, there's one called the Museum of American Finance, and there was an exhibit there recently that had the what I would consider the most beautiful banknote ever created in American history, which was made in the 1890s, and it just showed these. It was sort of allegorical art with these like women in drapey robes on the front of the banknote, and That was on display. I'd never seen that before. Um, So things like that that allow you to find out these histories and these stories. Um, At 23 Wall Street, on the facade of the building, there are these pockmarks, and there's no sense of why they're there. And then when you look into it, you realize that they are the remains of a terrorist attack that happened in 1920 that involved a horse-drawn cart and a bomb that was placed on it. And there's no plaque there. There's no sign indicating what that is. But if you know what it is, you can go there and touch those, those scars mm. on the wall. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's history and stories everywhere.
0: Ella Morton, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Ella Morton is associate editor at Atlas Obscura and co-author of the Atlas Obscura book. The New York Botanical Garden might not be the most obscure destination in New York City, but it is the go-to place if you want to explore unique plants and flowers. In fact, the NYBG is right now wowing visitors with a display of rare and exotic orchids. I recently caught up with the man behind the garden's 15th annual orchid show, which has a Thailand theme.
3: My name is Christian Primo, and I am the uh, manager of the Enid Ahop Conservatory and the designer of this year's orchid show, Thailand. Thailand comes to the Bronx, huh, Christian? It does, in a big way. So I think this was a, a no-brainer theme for us this year. Um, Thailand not only is one of the leading producers of orchids today and cultivars of orchids, but it's got a lot of really uh, unique architectural and cultural cues and, um, or elements that, that really made it easy for us to put this show together.
0: What makes Thailand such a great place for orchids?
3: I think there there are a few reasons. I think that the temperature is perfect for a lot of these tropical orchids. So things like the Vanda orchid, which is this beautiful—they call it the rainbow orchid—and it's for good reason. It comes in every color of the rainbow. Um, Tropical lady slippers, dendrobium, uh, cane orchids. So um, the temperature, the the climate there is perfect. But they're um, also—it's a gardening culture, and they love growing plants. And in fact, they grow a lot of plants other than orchids, so a lot of the really progressive cultivars and really cool plants that are on the market now are coming out of Thailand.
0: It smells absolutely amazing in here. I would imagine that smell is coming from the orchids.
3: Yeah, radio is not the greatest medium, I guess, to try to explain it, but it is. Um, there are a lot of orchids. Some just have beautiful color or form, and, of course, there are other orchids that attract pollinators with scent, and that's what you're smelling now, and we, we use those quite... Uh, quite liberally in the show, so people get the full sensory experience.
0: How many varieties are here in this exhibit?
3: There are thousands of orchids and hundreds of cultivars uh, and species in the show. Um, and we, we actually don't have a, an exact count, but at any given point when somebody comes to the show, you will see thousands and thousands of orchids in bloom. You mentioned a few, but how varied are they? How dramatically different? Well, it's the largest family of plants on the planet. So you can imagine um, uh, just the number of species are incredible. But then when the breeders, as I said, especially in Thailand, get their hands on these beautiful plants, they breed uh, very unique and beautiful cultivars. So there are thousands and thousands of cultivars in addition to just the the species that exist. How many were new to you in doing this exhibit? (laughs) Well, you know, at this point, um, I've seen a lot of what's on the market. But every year without fail, of course, because breeders are so prolific there will be new uh, new things that I have not seen, and I try to get my hands on those whenever possible. So this year there are maybe five to ten um, cultivars that just came out that will be in the show, and they're, they're awesome. I usually try to liberate a few after the show from my own personal collection if I can, and uh, I, I definitely have a list, and, and some of those new cultivars are on it. I was going to
0: ask the question, what happens to all of these orchids after the exhibit ends?
3: Yeah, so I think that whatever we deem um, appropriate for the permanent collections, we will accession and we'll keep and grow here. Um, uh, Anything else, we usually donate to schools, hospitals, um, anyone who can really enjoy them after the fact and use them to teach. Um, So we do not sell any of the orchids that are left over, but they do go to a good home. What would you say is the most exotic orchid you have here? In the collection or in the show? In the show. Let's go with that. I think in the show, I think the thing that people find the most interesting, of course, that's going to change from person to person, um, but I think it's the tropical lady slippers. So everybody is familiar with the hardy lady slippers that may grow in your own backyard here. When they see the incredible um, diversity of tropical lady slippers and the colors that those uh, that those show off, I think that's what people really kind of gravitate to. Those They're smaller but they're incredibly beautiful and unique. What about in the collection then? In the collection, because I'm a nerd, I would have to say it's uh, Darwin's star orchid. And to make a long story short, he uh, postulated that whatever pollinated this specific orchid must have a proboscis that was 12 to 14 inches long because there's this nectar spur that hangs off the back. And of course, people said, Darwin, you're crazy. There is no such animal. Um, And it was decades after his death that a scientist observed a hawk moth, an African hawk moth, hovering at night in front of this orchid, unfurling, of course, its 14-inch proboscis and pollinating the plant, getting the nectar in the process. So just to me, it's a beautiful orchid, but the story behind it, um, that story of co-evolution between the moth and the flower is incredible. So what went into putting this all together for you? (laughs) It's really like a nine-month process, if not more. So as soon as this shows over, we start planning the theme for next year and of course that evolves slowly slowly it starts to snowball once we set uh, set our sights on a theme we find those elements of the theme that we want to showcase we don't want to beat people over the head we we want the orchids to shine but we do need to represent as we did this year thailand appropriately Um, and then we have two weeks to actually put the show together once all that planning has taken place so um that is a, a harrowing two weeks, but when we step back and we look at what we've done, it's, um, it's great. I can't imagine doing anything else for a living, and I, if, if people are happy, we're happy.
0: So besides the orchids themselves, how is Thailand represented in this exhibit?
3: Sure. So we, um, you know, naturally there's this over-the-top um, beautiful architecture that you'll find in the cities, and you'll see gilded roof lines and colors of of, uh, you know every color of the rainbow and that's beautiful but what we tried to do is again let the orchid shine so we took a more traditional structure and that is our uh, centerpiece our our main centerpiece our focal point and it's a thai sala which is kind of a a country garden structure that you would find people would go there to get out of the heat and get out of the sun Um, so it's a little bit toned down but again the orchids that cover it um, that's the wow factor there. We studied how to weave traditional bamboo uh, fences. The way that a lot of Thai walk through a garden or experience a garden is almost like a play. So it's act by act. It's separated in some way, shape, or form. So we use this traditional uh, bamboo structures to, to separate those elements of the garden. Of course, we have um, elephants because it wouldn't be a Thai show without elephants. Um, So there are elephants hiding throughout the show, and uh, those are festooned with orchids as well. Uh, Lanterns, and um, I think my favorite this year are the little spirit houses. And each garden, every household or business has uh, a spirit, a guardian spirit. And they build these beautiful carved wooden um, spirit houses for the spirits to reside, and people will offer uh, daily offerings to these spirits. It could be soda, fruit, flowers, candies. Um, so those are fascinating. We have those, of course, because we want to keep the spirits of the garden appeased. So what
0: temperature is it in here, Christian?
3: It is, we try to keep it uh, between 70 and 80 degrees. And, of course, humidity will fluctuate throughout the day. We usually water in the morning to get the humidity up. Um, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful perfect temperature on a cold winter day, a cold February, March day. So
0: I was going to say, so essentially you have the best job in New York City in New York City's winters.
3: Yeah, I think it could be worse, couldn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. And especially first thing in the morning, um, you know, I take the opportunity to walk through and really it's just you and your thoughts. Um, but, you know, we, we hope that guests do the same. You know, it's a respite from the, the crazy streets of New York and the temperature outside. And, uh, you know, people seem to be enjoying themselves. So that's all I can ask for. Christian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Enjoy.
0: Christian Primo is the designer of the New York Botanical Gardens Orchid Show. It runs through April 9th. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Salas. I'm George Boraki. Thanks so much for listening.